0: I love lobbying. I love the idea of representing people and helping them influence Congress and you know around a certain set of issues, whatever they might be.
1: Welcome back indeed. My gosh, I can't believe it's been almost two years since we've had an episode of 80 Proof Politics, but I gotta tell you folks, it just was not the same. You saw those Zoom episodes, they were great. Stuart Roy in the audience tonight participated in one and I thought they did a fantastic job. But you know, this was this whole premise was about being with the people to make this town work. It was sitting down telling stories over a drink at their favorite place, and that obviously wasn't happening during the pandemic. So tonight, we're back, season three, episode one, broadcasting from a secret location south of Alexandria, Virginia, commonly known around the neighborhood as the Blue Smoke Lounge. It's basically my backyard. And with me tonight is an old friend who has made a fantastic career in this town, Mike Bergman. Mike, cheers, brother, great to see you.
0: It's great to be here, Bill, in the, uh, the shack in the back, breaking it in for 80-Proof Politics. Um, I, I am uh, honored to be here, to be your first guest after the pandemic, and to be here in person to do this.
1: Oh, it's only appropriate that you're here because it's just, it's just you know, first of all, it's appropriate because you had such a storied career in the stilled spirits industry, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But I want to talk to you now about your new... mike is the president and founder of swamp pilot strategies here in washington and first of all tell me about the name
0: over the last decades people have labeled the place that i have you know prospered a swamp Mm -hmm. and i i it's a bit derogatory to some uh to me and to some others you know one one person's swamp is another person's paradise and i've been navigating that swamp for the last 30 years it's what's driven me, it's been, you know, I, I love Capitol Hill. I love Congress. I love everything about the members, staff, the way the whole process works. It, it You know, it's not a derogatory. It's not, it's not a, a negative. And influencing them isn't negative either, and they need guidance. And that's why a swamp navigator is needed to help them get from concept to consumer concept to a law um and uh, you know i have stood back on the banks of this swamp as people try to drain it over the last two decades and i've filled it back with bourbon and wafted a little cigar smoke to make a foggy effect you know so my new venture it's a lobbying shop it's one man right now one one swamp pilot uh it's going to be old school shoe leather uh you know, take a good idea to the hill try to convince people to to agree with us, and if we got to move legislation, get 50 votes, plus you know, 50% plus one vote, and, and win things for my clients. Uh, but so that's what it is. It's it's just helping people navigate this perception that there's a swamp here.
1: Well, 50% uh, plus one is what the game's all about these absolutely. days. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so exactly true. right. Well, you, know, you touched on the basic premise of 80 proof politics right there. Mm-hmm. We're pulling back the curtain to find out how people like you are helping others navigate mm-hmm. this town. You know,
0: influence isn't a dirty word. It's not a four-letter word. It's okay for us to be here and have the vocation of lobbyists and be proud of it. You know, we are here representing the, the lives and livelihoods of millions of people, depending on what we do. Now, of course, I spent the last two decades trying to make August National Happy Hour Month, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I have not... No, it's a it's a fiscal.
1: Why, why, it's a, uh, why were we limiting? Well, to one it's month a
0: little too kissy. That's true. But, you know, I, I have had this concept around ways and means of finance, guys. The fact is that the, all these folks that want to make people drink less, they ought to, peop, you know, help people drink just a little bit more. You know, for every one drink more you drink, you're you're getting more excise tax. You're it's a revenue raiser for us to now all in moderation, all in do it in a way that's you know legal to get, get you get a ride home uber whatever but the fact is you know bad policy is getting people to drink less we should be drinking more and we've raised more more money because it's a highly taxed commodity uh and the tax isn't going down anymore and we already we took a little cut uh, a few years ago which uh no one saw coming but uh that, that the fact is you know people can drink we raise money it's a it's a it's a it's a great industry i was great you know, great, great, uh, great part of my career for the last couple decades. And well, we're
1: going to touch on that. Ready,
0: ready to move forward with Swamp Pilots. So, long-winded right. answer to get to, to why I got to where I am, and uh, I'm excited about this new venture. Looking forward to betting on myself for the first time in my career. Excellent. You know, I've had an opportunity to work for a lot of really smart people, a lot of great uh, legislators. A great company, and now I want to work for myself a little bit and see what happens. You know? So,
1: tell me a bit about the things you've learned along that path that you're going to
0: apply to this new venture. You know, um, always, always be open to 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 new new ideas and thoughts. Be be flexible. Um, you know, not to belabor a very well uh, well driven idea these days i don't know if you follow a guy named simon sinek but you start with why you don't tout on the who or the what it's you know really focusing on why you do things you know you 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 create strategies around the why you you move forward with with the why uh you you it's it, it you know it, it it is that thing that pulls you back to the core so your core beliefs those things are you know not about what you've done or who you are it's about you why you do things and you know that i think has been something i've learned over time uh reading his books about leadership really have had a big impact on the way i've managed the way i lobbied the way i manage being a, a a manager of people you know having you know clear clear goals and understanding not just goal setting or strategic thinking rather but why we're doing things if you put your why against every part of a strategy it can be a winning strategy another thing um i have learned is you know be purpose driven understand you know self-reflect on yourself understand who you are when you go into things uh, you know as part of diazio we did a lot of that kind of leadership training and early on you know five or six years into that career you know i settled into a purpose and you know you you you, you go through these leadership programs and you know, my purpose for a long time has been i want to have at least one great idea every day that's and always be better tomorrow than i was today that's a great
1: goal
0: yeah so it's a, you know that is the, the premise around you know again I, I like to have great ideas i like to you know, think about things and try to be helpful at all times help help my people the people that work for me do the same and then oh never plateau always be better tomorrow
1: from what i take of your career you're probably going to be applying a lot more to Swamp Pilot than just pounding the halls of Congress. Yeah. What's going to be your, your approach to, to fortify that line?
0: Well, I'm going to be a strategic thinker for people who want help thinking about how to navigate this place. Um, I'm still going to lobby. I'm still going to shoe leather when need for high value meetings or where they need me to fill in. You know, I want to help them create narratives around issues that, you know, both from the public and the way they handle themselves. You know um, what materials, how they use the twenty first century technology and media, this type of format and others. Um, it's you know, the 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 roots of all this are still the same. You know the delivery mechanisms might be different, but you take a great idea, you you develop it, you 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 know you just have to give yourself a fighting chance to grab their ear, whoever they are, to move it. It, it you know. It, it, you can be controversial. You can be on the wrong side and still develop a good narrative. That that still yeah. happens too. So, I, you know, I'm 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 going to be that. I'm going to you know I'm going to have a bit of regulatory practice. I, I can, you know, when you see the emerging issues, you know, I worked in a highly regulated industry for 22 years, with cannabis coming into the mix. I can see that as potential, you know, getting away from alcohol, but into a highly regulated industry, that's going to be new. And, you know, I can see a regulatory practice, not even lobbying for those guys, but helping them na- navigate, you know, concept to consumer, getting, you know, their ideas of what their products ought to be on a national scale through the federal process that's going to be created for them to legitimize and normalize their business. We've done that with beverage alcohol. But we don't need that help in cannabis. And there's nobody out there that could do that right now. And I think liquor lobbyists, you know, spirits lobbyists, beverage alcohol lobbyists like me, are you know, well-situated, uh, well-positioned well to, uh, to help those guys move forward.
1: You know, we've talked on 80 Proof before about how so much of what happens to this town is so much more than just the schoolhouse rock version of getting yes. a bill passed. What's been your experience with the amount of time you've put in on the regulatory side
0: of rules mm-hmm. and regulations versus passing a law? Um, I, I would probably say it's more on the, 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 the congressional side, more on the lobbying against big issues. But then the regulatory side is, you know, I can't really, percentages are hard, but regulatory side has been more, um, managing when the companies made a mistake, when they've got off the, you know, they got away from the way the regs look, they've, they've taken that, you know I, I you know there's no problem you, you utilizing a, a loophole to gain advantage to lower your tax roll, to do something yeah. you know but you don't want to be a hog at the trough and then you don't have to go explain yourself about being a hog at the trough and i've told these guys or t- i used to tell them when i worked there uh, you squeeze the golden goose too hard it's going to die mm-hmm. so when you get one of those you preserve it you protect it you don't overutilize it, or you will uh, you, you'll kill it. So you know, I wouldn't say I, I would. I mean, you know, we've spent a lot of time moving legislation over the years. We've spent a lot of time uh, keeping bad things from happening, whether it's a tax increase or uh, some sort of uh, uh, move against our ability to advertise. Um, you know. Uh, the big tax bills over the years, you know, I worked for a foreign based multinational, so we were always under target for being, uh, segregated and, and frankly, uh, uh, treated differently than, than other, uh, you know, U.S. uh, based companies and, and, you know, so that, that, that's been a, you know, uh, it's been a balance.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we've kind of been dancing around this, but you've talked about your previous experience quite
0: a bit. So could, yeah. let's
1: just let's dive right into that you were what 15 years
0: with Diageo? Oh, i was 22 years 22 years
1: 1999 oh, wow.
0: to you know uh, january of 1999 to october of of 2021
1: that's fantastic 22 years that, that's and Yeah, that's phenomenal I'm, Yeah, I'm,
0: i've called myself over the last five or six years a lobbying unicorn yeah because it doesn't that. happen it doesn't happen it's rare to live this long and do this long for the same guys and I kept them fooled for a little bit. And, and you know, I really, when I took the job in 99, uh, Diageo wasn't a known name. My, I was hired to create a Diageo footprint, you know, raise our game. Did they have a presence in Washington before then? They did, but it was, it was you know, I was, Diageo was created in a merger in 1997 between two underperforming British beverage alcohol companies. Um, came together. I was kind of the next iteration of what the, D, the, the D.C. office was going to look like. So I was brought on off the hill. Um, so, you know, really again to, to create the footprint. Um, and then, you know, our focus as a big spirits company with the uh, beer brand Guinness was to take beer occasions. You know, beer was the dominant, uh, you know, massive, you know, well over half the drinking occasions in the US at that point were, 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 were beer drinking occasions. And our goal was to get one, two, three percent of those. And you know, for every one percent of a beer occasion we got, we being across all of Diageo, it's $100 million to the bottom line. Well, we were really successful at it. And America's palates were changing over the last two decades. And we're drinking bourbon here tonight, and it's a cocktail culture. And, you know, that company's done very well. And a lot of that's related to the work we did here in, uh, again, making sure they could advertise and, and you know, uh, sports marketing, which we were very active in uh, starting very early on. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and we've uh, we've had you know a lot of success uh, over that twenty two years without making August National Happy Hour month.
1: Well, what were the big issues
0: for you during that time? Obviously, tax is always an issue. Well, if we we go back. I guess we go. You want to go backwards or forwards? Take to go back. from, yeah, we'll 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 go backwards. We'll start. Uh, you know, two and a half years ago, we lowered the excise tax on alcohol, all alcohol, beer, wine, and spirits, uh, for the first time since the Civil War. We codified that. You know, we've always thought the best uh, defense is a good offense. So if you, 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 get, you convince these guys to cut the tax, you're highly unlikely in the next few years or even decade to raise the tax again, because they, they did that.
1: So let me ask you on that yeah. point specifically, were you, obviously you were picking up on a sign of the times, but how difficult was it to move that debate from alcohol as a syntax? Uh, it,
0: it, it wasn't, you know, I think over the last, I want to say probably 25 years, since the last big tax increase in 85. Or 91, let's say 91, that's 30 years. Gosh, the math is hard. <laughs> um, you know, our industry across, you know, beer, wine, and spirits has done a really good job framing excise tax and the alcohol tax, not as a syntax, but as a, a, a uh, consumer tax, as a, as a tax on um, hospitality. And the people hurt most by it are the bar owners, bar keepers, restaurateurs, others that uh, you know thrive Mm -hmm. and have the best margins on beverage alcohol products in their businesses. So we had moved away that. I, 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 you know, in the lead up to Obamacare, there was some talk about an alcohol tax, and we did some work with some, oh, center right groups to, to raise the issue of whether beverage alcohol should be on the table or not, and we did some localized outreach into uh, a few key senators, you know, it was kind of going through the Senate Finance Committee. And
1: this is what we would call grassroots.
0: This is, well, it was grassroots, a little, you know, very much uh, 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 advanced grassroots. Define that. Working with organizations who are like-minded on taxes and paying them a little bit of, get you know, them as the organization to organize their folks to go out and, and, Diffuse the message, and we did it to you know fifteen offices, and not here in D.C. What they did was send local people to their, the the field offices of, let's say, Senator Grassley, who was probably on our side anyway, you know, about beverage alcohol, but uh, you, you know, or, or a tax a tax increase or, or anything like that. But um, you know, their their whole thing was. If you go get a pic, go deliver a message, beverage, alcohol, taxes are, are you know, should be off the table regarding health care, we'll give you a t-shirt. So they were, they, they basically, you know, said get a picture at the senator's office if you go to deliver this message, and Senator Grassley, and he referred to beverage taxes across the board, whether it be soda or alcohol as annoyance taxes those oh. are just annoyances <laughs> yeah. and we had annoyed him and and very know, regressive yeah and very regressive yeah. absolutely regressive across the board and that you know so we didn't do that to grassley we did it to Bacchus at the time we did it to uh several other you know leadership we did it to you know and it was you know so activating against an issue like that uh you know, so it was not so again over time i think we've morphed away from a syntax it's it's not you know we've we've you know, we've done enough in the responsibility space to not be equated to tobacco like some would do, and a lot have done. And we, uh, you know, we've prospered. Uh, so we lowered the tax in, in, uh, in, in 2017, 2018. We then got made permanent, you know, last year.
1: This is Peter. Just two brands having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. It seems to me that cannabis is kind of in that same position, starting with the groundwork that hemp. Industry
0: did. Yeah, I think that's right to some extent. I, I think that well, they're, they've advanced though in such a piecemeal way in the states, you know, it's the epitome of putting the cart before the horse. Mm-hmm. You've got such variances in state laws. They are very much in need of, of, of some continuity and some uh, uh, you know, normalization for, you know, just what a dose is. You know, we've defined standard drinks an ounce and a half of spirits today to prove five ounce of wine at 12% alcohol, 12%. Uh, Twelve uh, ounces of uh, you know, beer at 5%, where legal dose of, of, of cannabis in, in Colorado's 10, you know, 10 grams and it's five grams in California, hundred percent difference, you know, so they've got, uh, they've got a lot of things they have to do. And I'm sure once they get their legislation right, it'll move forward. And it should, you know, we, this is a legal, uh, uh, product in, in, you know, 30 some odd states now. So, uh, It's time for the federal feds to catch up and and impose an excise tax and impose reasonable standards uh, through the U.S. Department of Treasury and FDA, whichever one takes the lead. It strikes me that either
1: you partake in alcoholic beverages or you know someone who does. People have a certain familiarity with that. Industry sector, but how hard was it for you to get up to speed on the issues that matter most to Diageo when you started?
0: Well, um, coming from the Hill, the pace of the Hill, and us having to be masters of so many different issues, so there's multitasking going on from what we were doing in the congressional office, especially as you know, in a leadership role, understanding you know, trying to make sure the boss was doing the right thing at all times, and managing a multitude of issues. Um, hitting the ground with a, a corporate entity, you know, it was very different. The issues weren't per se more, and they're pretty standard. I mean, advertising freedom, lower tax. Um, you know, then you get into kind of the formulation stuff and the notion that we were going to introduce a product called Smirnoff Ice in 2001. Mm-hmm. That was a flavored based. Uh, malt, you know, malt beverage, but it had 90% spirits and 10% malt, and became a, a huge issue in the early 2000s, where Diageo went toe to toe with the brewers, uh, and you know, basically because we were we were putting for the first time on a malt brand, uh, a spirits label. You know, Smirnoff uh, Ice was a groundbreaking product. And you know, we had the audacity to, to advertise it on the Super Bowl and other things. <laughs> oh, I remember that yeah, yeah. so we, we took a whole new new run at uh, television advertising for spirits about that same time uh, you know so we were we were changing the game, no spirits company had really looked to be so progressive in in breaking some of the norms yeah you know, that had been voluntarily taking our, our advertising off of television. We, we, you know, Seagram flirted with it in the mid nineties, but really didn't get that far with it. And then acquiesced. we Um, you know, we, we again decided that we'd go toe to toe with beer, again, not just in the market, but here as well. And we were successful doing that most, most, most of the times. And we were little, I mean, it was just, uh, uh, us didn't have a big pack, never have, you know, so it was about Crafting a narrative that made sense based on science, based on, on the way you know people drink, and, and uh, you know that's uh, you know that that's you know been a hallmark of what we tried to do. Um, you know we worked through uh, through a lot of different you know issues on that. We had some very parochial issues where we wanted to modernize our labels and put more information on our labels around you know calories and, and carbs okay. again. Taking on kind of the brewers because our you know, our you know, vodka story is better than you know Budweiser story when it comes to uh, to you know carbs and, and calories.
1: Well, I didn't mean to cut you off because no. you were working the timeline backwards. Yeah, I no, got yeah, We're all over the
0: map. That's what, okay. What that were you... some
1: of the big issues before that?
0: Um, well, we went from the first to the, the well, we went for the the last thing the we first. really did yeah. to the first. Uh, in the middle, we had a major move of Captain Morgan from. Uh, Puerto Rico to the Virgin Islands, which uh, we, we never owned anything in Puerto Rico. Uh, Captain Morgan was bought by uh, by Diageo in the early 2000s for, as we bought a large part of the Seagram brands. Seagram had a long-term uh, uh, distilling deal with uh, a group on Puerto Rico called uh, Serrales, Um but that deal ended in 2012, and around 2006 or seven, we needed to start pathing a course forward for what Captain Morgan was going to be. Did we want to own you know in 2012, he was a free agent. He could continue doing a, a commercial relationship with the, the distiller of a choice, or we could build our own distilleries somewhere else.
1: And, and what limited knowledge I have of this, where there was kind of a rum war going on. There was there, war. Between well,
0: Puerto Rico and Yeah, Puerto I States? mean, we, we, we started that. Um, as I said, there you know the rum cover over is this unique law that only only is for the, the, the U.S. territories, mainly vir, uh, Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, where um, the entire excise tax produced by territory-produced rum, so, or generated by territory-produced rum. So if you make rum, in the Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico and you sell it into the United States, you know, into this market, the entirety of the excise tax goes back to the local governments. Mm. It's a, it's, it's, uh, it's, basically was given to them, well, in, in 1917 to Puerto Rico in a 52, I believe, uh, to the Virgin Islands in lieu of the direct appropriations. So the, the revenue generated by that, you know, indigenous product uh, was you know to be given back to them. That didn't help them in the '60s when the U.S. sugar program went to, into effect and basically uh, did away with sugar production on both territories. Uh-huh. So, but they needed that revenue, so they, in part, started subsidizing the production of rum on both territories in the Virgin Islands in uh in and uh, Puerto Rico. So. Move the clock forward to two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. We've got this growing—you know—one of the fastest growing brands in, uh, in, in, in the world. And Captain Morgan, we've taken it from a two million proof or two million case brand to yeah. somewhere around seven, eight, I mean, nine. who hasn't done the pose? Right? Yeah, who hasn't done the pose? Yeah. Um, and he was a free agent. Well, at that time, he was generating. Uh, for Puerto Rico, about $115, $120 dollars of revenue. Wow. Well, you know our contract with that the, the original distiller was was ending. and we had the ability to say what, what the fate of Captain Morgan's going to be. And you know we can stay in Puerto Rico you continue to get that money, or we can move to the Virgin Islands and they get that money. We ever, we had, when, when we really decided to move forward with, frankly, um, the, going forward with this process, when the Virgin Islands was identified as a viable com, uh, competitor for the business, we had two separate negotiating teams one for the Puerto Ricans, one for the Virgin Islanders, who would come up with the best deal. The, port, the Virgin Islands, we noticed, had just given a direct subsidy to subsidize the, the production of Cruzan and you know when we saw that legislation we're like well maybe we should go talk to them and so we we you know we being a couple, you me and an in-house uh uh supply guy in procurement and uh an outside counsel i'd hired here in dc to help me understand what the rum cover over was uh went down to the u.s virgin islands met with the governor and uh we went into that meeting going you know what are we going to ask for you know they're basically going to say if what would it take for you to you know what would would you be willing to subsidize the production of rum what would you give us uh you know to uh, induce us to come here and produce captain Morgan rum? and we're bringing 120 million dollars with you we're like god did we ask for you know it's going to be a negotiation so we start high but we can't ask for like 50 percent because that's that looks like we're, we're pigs. Yeah. So we're like, let's start at <laughs> 46. 49.99. Yeah, so we started at 46. And we're like, and again, like we're going to start a negotiation. We walk in there, we do the thing, we say, hey, you know, $120 million. Uh, we didn't really even have, we didn't think we'd walk out of there with a deal. We thought we were just introducing the concept. $120 million, what would you like? Well, what would you want? We said forty six, and the governor said yes. So you walk into a governor and say, I got $120 million. It's legitimate. It's legal. You know, how much would you be willing to give? And you ask for $30, $40 million of for that one twenty or 40s whatever. They're going to say yes. There's not one that's not going to do it. So the governor was, it was refined and understood. One of the great politicians I've ever dealt with. And, uh, you know, the, 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 I know the Caribbean gets a, a bad rap, but this was... One of the, uh, we never were strong-armed. We never felt any. There was, was the most uh, above-board deal for for the future of the of the of the product. Before that,
1: were there any major issues, or were you spending your time educating decision makers about who Diageo is?
0: Yeah, we a lot of education. We at one time I had Senator Durbin when he was a House member uh you know, agreed to come see the Diageo plant in uh Plainfield, Illinois. I had got out to Chicago landed and got the note that uh the Mr. Durbin's not coming. He yeah. thought Diageo was a shoe company. Yeah. So there was some bad staff <laughs> work there. Uh you know, so we we we, we, we have you know, this was early and he will not remember it so don't ask him. You know, uh one of the best things I did at Diageo with a uh, with a colleague uh, Oh, and I have a great uh, friend and colleague, Elizabeth Weiss, who now works for of competitor Sazerat. We started Diageo House on Capitol Hill. I wanted to ask you about that because yeah, we talked about a couple of tools that yeah. you've used: advanced grassroots. Yeah.
1: Didn't, didn't well, have much of a pack, but tell us about Diageo so House because that's the, well known in this town.
0: Yeah, uh, we 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 were up against a lease uh, ending. We were the typical uh, K Street office, you know, Thirteenth and K. Uh, and uh, got challenged by an old boss that we, uh, what do we want? You know, he said, we want to move to the Hill. Well, what do you really want? And then we, we looked at 101, 101 oh, Constitution. Yeah. And cool. we're going to go there. And then, no, actually, it was the Jones Day building. So this was a bit of a bit way back. Oh, but, sure. So they right. were just building. And uh, I got shown this gorgeous For space. those who don't
1: know, Jones Day is right there in the the senate side about two blocks right. off and some of the
0: more picturesque views got a great got a great uh, deck on the on the on the roof of the place but so we got shown this beautiful space you know, share a floor with comcast on that you know and then we went to go sign the papers and they did uh, great okie doke on us mm. he said well comcast decided they're going to take the rest of that that mm. floor how about this 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 floor back on the back side of the building I'm like that didn't give us anything that you know so we realigned, and we decided to go uh, do something unique. We decided we don't need a really grandiose office. So we got a very spartan office at 600 Penn, and then I did a memo called uh, Townhouses, this corporate jet of, of the 21st century. I like that. And, you know, and we weren't the first townhouse, but if you look you know, up to 2006, one of the great those trusting relationships between members and corporate entities those that had the ability to help them travel were these corporate jets they were they were they were it was travel it was great conversations you know Diazio never had about a a captive audience yeah captive audience Um, so post 2006 when really that all just went away when you're gonna charge them the the corporate the the rack rate for a first first first-class ticket you know that ability to do that for most went away um, so the proliferation of townhouses started. Now we didn't; we weren't in the front end of that. But uh, you know, we did have a very small pack. So, you know, how our the, my boss at the time gave us a challenge. You know how how can you maximize this opportunity? What to change? So we our theory the the second title of that you know the corporate jet of the twenty first century was uh, anybody can build a townhouse, but nobody can do one like we can. So we decided, you know, the first thing we were gonna do was design the bar. You know, the essence of our company was its products, its mm-hmm. brands, and anybody that walked into that place got to see this showcase of Diageo brands, plus Guinness on tap, and best Guinness in town. Yeah. We built that as, uh, before anything else. Um, we put a little cigar lounge upstairs, uh, about the size of your little mm-hmm. shack right here, yeah. uh, and it became a trusting environment for members of Congress to come have cocktails, bring, you know, some trusted friends in, raise money. And we took our little pack, uh, were able to in-kind the use of the the, the, the the townhouse and the product, and uh, became a bit of a bundler. You know, we were seen as the host of every one of those yeah. those those fundraisers. We did about, a, you know, we'll do about 100 fundraisers a year. Yeah,
1: it wasn't and, just fundraising. No, it right. wasn't.
0: We did a lot of charity stuff there. We did our, our, in, our in-market folks used it to, when they were introducing new brands with uh, with bartenders around town, did it for interviews for, for, for folks in the business as well. So it was multi-use, but the most of you know most of it was for okay. fundraising.
1: I think I read somewhere where you did something like 135 events in 2019
0: alone. Yeah, no, that's about right. That's, the before time. That's about right. About, about I would say, 80% were fundraisers. Okay. What else did you learn from that
1: period with Diageo from an advocacy tool standpoint that you want to
0: convince your clients to do in swamp pilot Uh, you're you're only as good as your last engagement so consistency being there often never settle in on a relationship because this town's fickle you know they they want to hear you they want to see you you need to to be be out there and be consistent you want to develop um, I've always called them hot coal relationships mm. with our key stakeholders, whoever they they may be, uh, whether it's your home delegation or key people in leadership, key people on key committees. And, and was base- that was
1: that Cole, coal C O A L C
0: O A L Yeah, all over. Well, walk over hot coals for you. You will walk over hot coals for me. Okay. Uh, and not in a transactional way, but it can be. I mean, it, it's it is it is just getting the ability for my client, my friend, my company I work for. The ability to be heard. You know, we, we, there are all no quid pro quos. I think I said that earlier. But there's the ability to create a personal relationship with these folks and to be trusted in a way that allows you to deliver information in a way that is heard better than any type of cold call. That's what it's all about. That's what influence is. It's, you know, allowing us the, the opportunity to diffuse a message, you know, to move an issue. Yeah, with 10,000 plus registered lobbyists
1: and almost an equal number of special interests shouting out mm-hmm. to get heard what would be the best piece of advice you have to your clients to get message delivery to where it needs to be seen
0: well one is to deliver them at home okay. don't just do it here in DC but keep up the relationship back there another is Break away from the cattle call. You know the most precious dollars being spent in this town are pack dollars. Right. Those those dollars represent, you know, dollars given by workers, by teachers, by whoever. You know, you're you're representing them and spend their money wisely. Make sure you're setting your clients, your company up for the greatest success by utilizing that money in the best way you possibly can. You know, and come with. Validity, come with, uh, you know, yourself buttoned up in the way that you can answer all the questions. If not, that you'll get back to them as soon as possible. Oh, I've always
1: said that's one of the best techniques a lobbyist can have is you have to be truthful when you don't know the answer. Absolutely. Because, one, you're showing credibility. But, two, you're creating the opportunity for that second conversation.
0: That's exactly right. So follow-ups are huge and, and be consistent with those but, um, you know, credibility, you know, and be humble. You know, there's so many people with who have, I, you know, self-awareness is one thing, but having, you know, your self-measured and understanding, you know, your impact and try to, try to do it the right way. Um, you know, you'll be, you know, be consistent, come with the right narrative.
1: So, Mike, I have to ask you the COVID question. Yeah. How much... Has your approach to your job and your career changed with the pandemic?
0: So this question was asked me on October 28th, before I left Diageo, October 30, 31st. Um, I had a team of eight people at Diageo, and we were, are still, but were as collegial as anybody that lived you know, around the country. We were friends and great colleagues covid brought us together closer via zoom we were doing zoom happy hours once every two weeks we were getting together uh you know just the camaraderie amongst the team i think we grew deeper and stronger Good. during covid we worked very hard during covid um if you look at even in, in our state in virginia you know cocktails to go is now permanent cocktails to go didn't exist anywhere <laughs> anywhere right?
1: anywhere in america
0: anywhere in america in twenty nineteen, you know, and my team of five state lobbyists who uh, did an amazing work around the country with a great idea. We we were lobbying for cocktails to go and delivery uh, delivery cocktails and curbside pickup before the restaurants even knew they needed it. They uh-huh. were they were trying to just survive. We were lobbying for their alcohol ability and and frankly step-changing, a modernization of, of beverage, alcohol, access in the States exponentially uh, in, in a year and a half that didn't exist. I mean, none of this existed. So, you know, and I was just, I was, I got to sit back and watch a great team work.
1: Tell me about the phrase, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting.
0: All right, so uh, my old boss, a great, great leader named Guy Smith. Guy uh, came to Diageo after a great career at Philip Morris and various other things. I um, always challenge us with that phrase early on: "If it's not, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting." But it came to life in. 2008 or 9, I can't remember exactly when. We were, have post the, the, the financial downturn, Diazio had a bad year, and okay. we were going to get a very... It's part if of we the were Great gonna, Recession. Yeah, if we were going to get a bonus, it was going to be very small. But, but Guy had some money left over for conferences or something, and we had just done the Virgin Islands deal. So he decided to do a trip, do a corporate relations trip to the Virgin Islands to one... Uh, spend some time together two, in lieu of a bonus three, show where Neo Diageo's walks the walk, talks the walk, we're a big player we're going to throw a meeting here um, but the exercise around that meeting was to bring if it's not impossible it's not interesting to life and we decided uh, he decided that we were going to write a book cool. and each of us would take a chapter and um, expound on that idea as it meant what it meant to us, you know, and it was a fascinating book that ranged from pieces of legislation people had passed to uh, learning the multiplication tables, passing a driving test. Um, I had an opportunity to be very—it was very cathartic for me to to write about an experience I had working on Capitol Hill for Frank Lucas um, that changed my life and is still probably my most uh, probably one when i was most proud of a team and two the the best work i've done as a professional um you know so i got to write about dealing with the the murrah building bombing uh after you know uh, mcveigh yeah uh you know created the country's largest crime scene but before nine eleven, um you know this terror you know domestic terrorist uh you blew up a, a fertilizer bomb in front of a federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, and Frank Lucas had just been elected. He was, you know, four months, five months into his first term. after a special election. I was his uh, LD at that time. I had, went on to be his AA. at went to AO after a bit, but uh, well, how, so how
1: did you turn that very public? And somewhat personal to you, tragedy into a professional success. You're now so proud
0: of. Well, this is this is a a, a really pretty amazing behind closed doors type issue on Capitol Hill, as public as the Murrah Building bombing was. A lot of things had to happen to make Oklahoma City right after the bombing, and um, what I wrote about it, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting. Was about. Uh, a meeting, uh, that took place, uh, in, uh, the Capitol. Um, it was, uh, between you know, my boss at the time, Congressman Frank Lucas, and another member of Congress from Oklahoma, uh, about how money should be spent in downtown Oklahoma City. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I, uh, the first line of the, 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 the chapter I wrote, uh, says, uh, how much, uh, how much damage could I do with the yellow highlighter?
1: <laughs> That's a great line.
0: And, uh, Basically, what was going on that day is there were just two different mindsets as to how this money should be spent. You know, Frank Lucas wanted to do everything he could to help downtown Oklahoma City. Um, And there were others who really wanted to limit it to just the bombing, no urban renewal. But the the damage was so, so vast. So that day, the staff director of the Commerce Justice State Appropriations uh, Subcommittee basically mediated a a session of dueling highlighters. I had a yellow highlighter. Congressman, (laughs) not to be named, had a green one. And we negotiated block by block where money could be spent uh, for CDBG grants. Uh, I can't remember what that acronym stands for. Community Development. Community Development Block Grants. And um, I guarantee you I won more blocks than he did. I knew where every window was shattered. I knew the historically black church off robinson had amazing stained glass windows blown out so we won more that day than we, we we lost but it just wasn't about that it was about how the office stepped up thank god every, everybody was unharmed but what that brought was a true step forward for for victims victims awareness um the uh the first time that uh, a uh, hearing a criminal case in the federal uh, courts was 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 Televised to allow the victims to see McVeigh's trial and other things, um, the development of an amazing memorial in downtown yeah, but, Oklahoma City. It's to, absolutely beautiful, by the yeah, way. Yeah, to uh, to commemorate or memorialize what was lost that day. to commemorate. It wasn't just about the loss; it was about the human spirit and how people in that community embraced each other and moved forward and embraced those that had lost and and. Uh, you know, so it was just, again, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting. It, that was, for me, an opportunity uh, to utilize that, just to write that stuff down. And, and what a great segue to the early
1: part of your career. I always like to ask my guests how they charted their path. And oftentimes they don't chart it. It just comes because of the skills that you build along the way. You mentioned working for Frank, you were chief of staff.
0: I was AA. The chief of staff was always, always in Oklahoma. Okay. I was always number two. All right.
1: The difference being? Which,
0: which you know, that probably led me to leave the hill sooner than I might because I was probably never going to be the chief. The chief I wanted to be in D.C. Okay. He wanted to have his chief of staff in Oklahoma. But so, you know, after you know, almost nine years on the hill, I made a decision to, to start dipping my toe to see, you know, what was next out there for me. And uh, and I got I landed the job at Diageo, which was You know, my first job I interviewed for from from the hill. And you got to Frank from
1: Don Nichols, right? I did. You
0: started with Don in town? I did. I I did. uh, And I started middle managers with him luckily. I'll go back. Let's just go back. Let's go to to Oklahoma. All right. You know, I'm I'm a little town guy. I grew up in a town of 3,000 people, 100 miles away from anywhere significant. Uh, Except it's 14 miles away from Ponca City, Oklahoma, where Don Nichols was from. Okay. But I'll get to Don in a little bit. Uh, I was an underperforming student at the University of Oklahoma. I'm sure Bill would say most all you students at the University of Oklahoma are underperforming, but that's,
1: that's, for that's, a different that's, a whole, that's a
0: whole other story. <laughs> um, and I was up against uh, intercession or summer school and needed to make a little money to just eat and answered an ad. Uh, the Oklahoma Republican Party was, uh, was hiring, uh, hiring uh, telemarketers. So oh, really? I showed up and telemarketed for the state party, uh, but uh, I wasn't a good telemarketer. But they really liked me, and uh, about a few weeks into that, the receptionist quit, and they liked me, so they asked me, "Hey, you're not in school right now," and I was, and I was just you know shooting shit, playing golf, doing whatever, you know, uh, and then going and faking donations on the phone for a few hours. That you know, and and. Uh, so I said, sure, I'll answer your phones for a few hours, you know, eight, you know, it, was a, it was a full-time, so I was at the state party for a, you know, about a month there, about 12 hours a day, and then um, and the state party chairman of the time was Tom Cole. Tom, as I was answering phones and telemarketing, made the announcement he was gonna run for the state senate. Tom is a brilliant politician, one of the great, great Republican leaders, uh, great member of Congress, I've been you know, great in rules committee, i great on appropriations. I, I, I got asked to drive Tom from Oakland City out way out west to a place called Elk City, about a two-and-a-half-hour drive, time and a half on a Saturday. Oh,
1: sure. And we I gotta got do to do that.
0: So, so yeah. I got to spend five hours with Tom in the car and um, drove out, drove back, talked a lot. Um, so a few days later, I get called into Tom's office thinking they're going to fire me because they caught the fact that every one of the donations that I faked uh, in night telemarketing... <laughs> Caught up with me, but they asked me to you know take the next eight ten months off of school and manage his state senate race because yeah. he was going to run. So I was not a manager. You don't manage Tom Cole's state senate race, and he's got every political mind in the state working around that table. So I I was the muscle, but I got to sit around that table and I got to learn. I got to learn about loose lips and sinking ships and and the notion of. You know, and it was the highest, the, the most expensive state Center race in Oklahoma history. We did direct mail, we did television, radio, uh, we did a mom's letter, a grandma's letter, we did, it was incredible, and it, and it, went, to, it went to a recount. We didn't even know if we were going to win that race, and we barely did. But Tom Coles, you know, started me down this, this track, went back to school, was a much better student. Uh, graduated with a better, uh, better grade point than I deserved. Just going to go to law school. It's kind of off kilter after that. Uh, wasn't really lined up to start law school when I wanted. Needed to get a job for a little while. Ended up working uh, at the state legislature of Oklahoma as the assistant to the minority leader of the Oklahoma House, which um, entailed what? Uh, it was one staff member. So, at that time, it's a it's a it's a hundred and ten member body. There were thirty six Republicans, I believe. They all, uh, they shared assistants. Well, they all were called secretaries back then. And I was the one partisan assistant for the entire Republican caucus. Wow! So I was, everything from a little bit of, a little bit of policy research, but the, the, the real research is done by a, a independent research bureau in Oklahoma, but they are hired by yeah. the Democrats, but now they're hired by the Republicans. So it's, it's very partisan, but they don't admit it. So I was the, the one partisan guy working for the leader. Who was he uh, was now a federal judge but was a very good uh, minority leader and you, know, you just work on some policy, you help people get dogs out of the pick the the, the, the dog pound, you work with you know, you do a little casework. It was it was a jack of all trades job, and I learned so much about pure wholesale politics, about what makes people tick at the at the base level. The least common denominator of, of true politics. Learned a lot from the assistants, the secretaries, there. Mindset and how to treat people and how to treat constituencies. You learned a lot there. That had to be a great. It was. How did
1: you transition from that to Nichols?
0: Well, it was. um, I transitioned from that to transitioning from that because I was going to only do that for about six months to start law school, and it it convinced me to defer law school and stay there for another year because I loved it. Okay. And then it was happenstance. Uh, My roommate uh, was very good friends with. Senator Nichols, scheduler from college, and they were talking on the phone about something. Hey, hey Jeff, you know anybody might be interested in coming to work for Don? Uh, we've got this spot open, and it just so happens, I'm his roommate. Uh, they hear about me, so they being uh, Brett Bernhardt and Les Borson, I get the call. So Les and Brett, Frank, Les's vision is to bring somebody on staff who knows what who their opponent. Is going to be and it so I was brought in I bypassed the mailroom and I was brought on to, to Don staff as a legislative or interviewed for a legislative assistant job which was a big jump, you know and I was making you know a, a great you know good enough salary at Oklahoma I had no idea what people made up here didn't even know what a legislative assistant was uh, they bring me up here and blessed and bread interview me and I, I guess they they saw enough to let me go talk to the senator So I said, "Why do you think you you could do this? Why do you think you're ready to come up here and work for me in in this capacity?" And I said, "Well, I've been down in the minor leagues, hitting pretty well. I've been, you know, I've you know, a few home runs, you know, but uh, good batting average down there. I'm I'm ready to make a make it make make it the call to the majors." And he loved that. Uh, And uh, you know, so I got that job as a legislative assistant and did that for three years, and then. the special election for Glenn English comes up, mm. and I called uh, Frank Lucas, who represents uh, many much of that western Oklahoma. You know, not very many people, but this true western Oklahoman, um, and I said, Frank, you got to run for this. So I was the uh, first or second call to Frank to say, think about it, do this. I think he, he was such a great leader down there and quiet, unassuming, and it was a tough race. It was a you know, the, he emerged from a very tough Republican primary, went to toe-to-toe with David Boren's hand-picked, yeah. you know. Uh, Back when general elections yeah, really meant yeah. something. Uh, and I, I, probably one of the best things I did was actually kept Senator Nichols from endorsing uh, somebody in that primary. Every other major statewide Republican endorsed uh, a, a different candidate than Frank, but Don stayed out of it because I had said, if you endorse, you're picking the wrong guy. And I feel real, that's another thing I'm very proud of, that uh, that we let that election, you know, he let that election alone, and, and Frank won, and uh, has been, you know, she's in his 27th year in Congress now, I think. He got to, you know, from Don to, to Frank that way, Frank gets elected, and I went over to be his LD and then AA, and, uh, uh-huh. you know, uh, had a great, you know, about, about three years for Don, about five and a half for, for Frank. Yeah. So, so much of what you learned along your path
1: was during what? People like the two of us and Stuart here might call the heyday of lobbying, even though there was a previous heyday that was a wild west. Yeah. <clears throat> how did you translate what you had learned about relationships, dealing with people, representing your bosses and then your corporation? How much of that changed in the post Abramoff Peloga? Yeah. Well, particularly given how well, much I mean, of the still spirits industry is a social Yeah, industry.
0: so I bought more drinks for people from 2000 or 1999 to 2006 than anybody in this town. You know, did we skip a beat or two? Yeah, I mean, in 06 and 07, there just weren't any rules, so we really didn't do anything. Once they came back with rules again, um, there's still ways to do it. I mean, this is this is where ethics reform. Here's here's ethics reform in Washington D.C. I can't take you to lunch and buy you Congressman Snort a sandwich or a steak, but you can take me to lunch, buy me a steak, and ask me for five thousand dollars for my back. Yeah. That you know, again. So the the craziest one was when I was told I couldn't uh, I I I I, I uh, would put uh, staffers at risk if I gave them Uber rides home from a party. Uh, So that was, that was interesting. You know, be creative, but understand what the laws are. Lean into legal. Lean into those professionals watching out for you and us to do what's right and understand it. Always get sign off. And, and, you know, don't, don't do anything before you've crossed the, you know, T's and dotted all the I's. Because that's, that's the paramount, most important. That's how you protect your brand, protect your boss, protect uh, yourself.
1: Mike, this has been a great conversation. You're a wonderful guest, Bert. All the best in your new career. Thank you. I have no doubt it's your continued success. I hope so. Uh, you know, as we wind this up, I just I want to ask you if you were approached by some newbie to town or a young professional looking to make the
0: transition to a career like you've had, what's a second piece of advice? Don't be afraid of trying to eat a dinosaur. Don't be afraid of trying to take a mountain. Put yourself in the position to do big things. Be uh, smart about uh, who you are, be self-aware. I I would bet probably one of the best skills I have had over the 30 some odd years I've been here is understanding my gaps. Recognizing where I am a little weak and being able to fill in with those smart people around me to help me strive and thrive and be better tomorrow than i was today but just don't don't be don't be afraid you know take the big bite and see what happens fantastic advice all the best to you again thank you so much for
1: joining me tonight thank you all for listening in take care